Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to Hub City, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more information about our vision, or you're interested in joining one of our serve teams, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. While we break for community groups during the summer, we'd love for you to stay connected through men's and women's groups on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. Our summer schedule will continue with our next event this week. We would love for you to join us Friday night, June 16th at 6.30 p.m. for a backyard movie night. We'll have candy, popcorn, and we'll watch the new Super Mario Brothers movie together. We hope to see you there. As we get ready to enter into corporate worship, if you have kids in service with you, we want you to be at ease. Kids are always welcome in service, and to make things easier, there are coloring sheets in the back of the sanctuary. Our kids' ministry is available to you, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. Good morning. How sweet it is to sing God's praises with you all. And how faithful a God we worship and serve. Amen. Amen. All we have need of, his hand will provide. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh Davidson, and I'm the worship leader here at the Hub City Church. I found out this morning that some of you refer to me as Guitar Josh. So, um, this is me, Guitar Josh, telling you, I'm so glad that you are here this morning. I have one quick announcement before we begin. We have our backyard movie night coming up next Friday, June 16th. We'll be watching the Super Mario Brothers movie. And we'll have candy, popcorn, drinks, all the proper movie accoutrements, if you will. And we would absolutely love for you to join us. And one last thing before we begin, I want to give a quick disclaimer. I am probably going to flail about like a flightless bird over the next 40 minutes or so, okay? Without a guitar strapped to my body, on this stage, I literally do not know what to do with my hands. Like, my body just forgets what arms and hands do. So at some point, I may reset to my Sunday morning default position, which is this, okay? I'll probably shake at the knees and stomp my right foot because that's what I do every Sunday morning. But now that we have that out of the way, if you have a Bible with you this morning, will you please turn to Ephesians 2? We're in the middle of the book of Ephesians in a series called Life Together in Christ. And this, as Tad has said, is because the first half of the letter is a beautiful articulation of gospel doctrine. And then the back half of the letter is mostly application of that doctrine to individuals, families, and churches who are doing life together in Christ. And if you were here last week, 
Tad gave part one of a sermon titled, Saved by Grace. Now, if you were unable to join us last week, let me, let me tell you a little secret here, right? All of the sermons are online. We have podcasts. Some of you don't know what podcasts are. Just Google podcasts, right? They're on YouTube. Everybody knows what YouTube is. You have it on your phone. You have it on your TV. You probably have it on both, okay? But in case you weren't here and you weren't aware that the sermons are out there for you, let's get you up to speed real quick. Last Sunday, Tad preached through verses 1 to 9 in Ephesians 2. Right? He walked us through how we are saved in the technical sense. And this morning, we're going to conclude with part 2 of Saved by Grace, really digging into verses 8, 9, and 10, and look at why we are saved. Have you ever considered that churches are a lot like hospitals? Churches are like hospitals, meaning they are places or communities appropriate for sick people. And having said that, there is not a hospital in the world that allows you to come in plagued by your infirmities and remain the way you are. That is not a hospital, that is a hospice. On the contrary, the job of a hospital is to identify the problem. Diagnose the source of it, determine the appropriate remedy, administer those remedies, and then watch as transformation occurs. What hospitals do not let you do is take up a bed, refuse medication, and remain exactly the way that you entered. Their job is to make you better, not to keep you the way they found you. And in large part, you see, this is the aim of the Christian church. Not because the church has the power to transform you, but because the gospel of Jesus Christ does. And there are some things so crucial, so vital to your life as a Christian that the church has the great responsibility and joyful duty to remind you and encourage you and urge you to consider week after week. It's why we reiterate the importance of worship through giving. It's why we really encourage you to plant yourself in biblical community. It's why the explicit gospel is preached every single Sunday, and it's why at the close of all of our Sunday morning gatherings, the same five words are said. In hopes of both reminding you and encouraging you, that your role in the church does not end when you walk out those doors. The church is not a building or a place. It is the people that comprise it. Which is why at the end of our corporate gathering this morning, you're going to hear those same five words again. Go and be the church. So let's pick back up in Ephesians 2 and explore those five words this morning. Starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our good and gracious Father. God, we are gathered here today and we long to hear your voice. Father, speak to us now. Comfort us. Console us. Convict us. Encourage and strengthen us as we examine your word together. Sanctify us in truth, for your word is truth. Father, we thank you for the breath in our lungs and for the many gifts you have so graciously given us. For the gift of your word. For the gift of grace. For the gift of salvation by the way of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for the gift of our local church. Father, there is a reason we are here on this earth. Jesus Christ has given us a mission. Help us to see the gravity and the urgency of this mission. We need your help. We love you and we thank you. It's in your son's beautiful name that we pray. Amen. I would like to ask you a very delicate question this morning. A question that if we're not able to ask in the church, we should not ask anywhere else. Because the church of Jesus Christ should be the safest place on this earth. And this is owing to the fact that in the arms of Jesus Christ, there is no safer place. And he died and paid his very own blood for this bride. This body, this church, it's a place free from shame and guilt and condemnation where we can be vulnerable and transparent with each other. And so I ask you this morning, wouldn't heaven be better? Wouldn't heaven be better than this life? Some of the strongest and most faithful Christians that I have ever known have come face to face with this very dark temptation. It was certainly the case for some of the most influential men in all the Bible. Men like Moses and Job, Solomon, Elijah, Jonah, even Paul himself, the man who wrote the very letter we've been going through in this series. Wouldn't heaven be better? A pastor by the name of R.B. Kuyper tells the story of an eight-year-old girl that had been attending vacation Bible school at the church that he pastored. And one afternoon, this girl walked into his office and to his great surprise asked, Mr. Kuyper, is it all right to commit suicide? Well, as, as you can imagine, the young pastor, he was shocked. But he had learned to never give a quick yes or no answer to a child's question without first discovering the reason that it was being asked. And so he said to her, Mary, Mary, why would you ever want to take your own life? She replied, well, it's because of what we learned in Bible school today. And Kuiper thought to himself, what 
in the world did she learn in Bible school this morning? She said, well, we were taught that heaven is a wonderful place, that there is no fear there, no crying, no fighting, no pain. Won't that be amazing? We just get to be with the Lord forever. And we were taught that when we die, we get to go be with Jesus immediately. Did I hear it right, Mr. Kuiper? So he scratched his head and said, Well, sweetheart, you heard it right, but why would you ever want to take your own life? And Mary replied, You've been to my house, Mr. Kuiper. You know my mom and dad. They don't know Jesus. They get drunk every night. So I have to get myself up every morning. I make my own breakfast. I go to school with dirty clothes. And when I'm at school, the other kids, they make fun of me. And then when I come home, there's fighting and crying and pain. And I'm always so afraid. Why wouldn't I want to go and be with Jesus? Wouldn't heaven be better? Wouldn't heaven be better? That little girl, you see, she wasn't dealing with theory. She was not speculating as theologians do about the mysteries of eternity. That little girl was dealing with reality and it forced her to ask a question that if we're honest, we all ask from time to time especially those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Why are we in this world anyways? What's the purpose of it all? Wouldn't heaven be better? Church, if, if that is you this morning, you are not alone in asking that question. Paul wrestles with this very same thing in Philippians 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I mean, if this world is a place marred by the fall, and if heaven really and truly is a realm of pure bliss and joy, why doesn't God take us to heaven immediately upon our conversion? Why would God keep his children out of paradise for a single minute longer than necessary? Wouldn't heaven be better? Now, I want to be very clear here. I am not speaking this morning to those of you who are not followers of Jesus Christ. I can understand that for someone who is not a Christian, you live for this world. All of your hopes, all of your dreams are bound to this world. Your investments are here. Your treasure is here. Your attention and your affections are here. And even when things take a bad turn in this life, you still hold out hope that one day things will get better here. And this makes perfect sense, right? Because, frankly, this is all you have. The most frightening thing in your life is the thought that one day, all of this will end. And so you may try to repress it, you may try to bury it, you may try to outright deny it, but the reason all of this is so fearful to you is because gnawing away deep in your conscience 
is the thought that after death, there will be a day of reckoning with your creator. And so you hold on to this life with all the strength that you can muster. And I can appreciate why you hold on so tightly because anything else would inspire dread. Which is why, if that is you this morning, we urge you without reservation, we plead with you to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior for sin and the free gift of salvation. In Christ alone is where you will find hope. Trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as Savior, King, and Lord. Absolutely nowhere else. Now with that said, my concern for the remainder of this morning is for those of us who do believe in Christ. Those of us who look to the future with confident expectation. Those of us who, because of our faith in the promises of God's word, joyfully anticipate the consummation of our salvation. And it is to you that I pose this question again. With all there is to endure in this sin-cursed world, the trials, the disappointments, the heartbreaks, the sufferings, the temptations, our withering bodies, the sin of other people, and the ever-increasing awareness of our very own sin, why aren't we happily ushered into eternity the very moment we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Wouldn't heaven be better? Well, my dear friends, the scriptures provide us with many, many answers to this question. And the one that we need to understand this morning is that Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, has given us a mission to accomplish in this world. A mission that has been given to every single one of us, apart from which, if I may be so blunt, continued existence in this life as a Christian makes absolutely no sense. On the evening prior to his crucifixion, Jesus Christ tells his men that he is going away and that they cannot accompany him. John chapter 13. The reason, Jesus says, his father has given him a specific mission. A mission planned in eternity past that would require him to both enter and leave this world. But Jesus is equally emphatic about another thing, right? He has a mission for his men. The mission of Jesus Christ? To leave this world via the cross by way of his atoning death and to purchase the gift of salvation so that all of us who would come to believe in him would have eternal life. But the mission of his disciples, he tells them? Not to leave this world, but to remain in it and engage with it so that they could declare to a dead and dying world the gospel message of hope and eternal life in Jesus Christ alone. This is what the gospel is, church. Good news to dead men. Christ was calling his followers to a worldly Christianity. Now, what do I mean by that exactly? A worldly Christianity. It seems so backwards, right? Given all that we hear about being countercultural as Christians, 
and all the warnings in scriptures about the evils of this world. Maybe you're familiar with some of them. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Given all of that, how can we possibly put worldly and Christian in the same sentence? So let me be as clear as possible here. It's point number one. The call of the Christian life is to a meaningful and intentional engagement with the world. We have been given a mission and a purpose. The call of the Christian life is to a meaningful and intentional engagement with the world. We have been given a mission and a purpose. Turn to John 17 in your Bibles. Jesus is praying to the Father right before his betrayal and arrest. Before he is brought before Pilate, mocked, beaten, and crucified on the cross, this is his prayer. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them, being his disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is not asking the Father for his disciples to be taken out of this world. He is praying for them as they are sent into the world. The emphasis falls on being sent with a mission to the world, not being sent on a mission to disassociate from the world. The Bible never encourages an isolated or monastic faith. There's no verse in the Bible that says, okay, so now that you've received the free gift of salvation, just kick back. Relax, man. Hunker down. Avoid the world at all costs until Jesus returns or you go to meet him. doesn't say that anywhere. So maybe it would be helpful for us, in light of this prayer, to revise the popular phrase you've probably heard, in but not of, in this way. We are not of the world, but we are sent into the world. Yes, Jesus says emphatically that those who have embraced him, those who have identified with him, they are in fact not of this world. But now because they are his, they are sent into the world. On a mission for gospel advancement through disciple making and good works. Church, we have been rescued from the darkness and given the light of Christ, not merely to flee the darkness, 
but to guide our steps as we go back into the world to show the world his light. The call of the Christian life is to a meaningful and intentional engagement with the world. We have been given a mission and a purpose. And now let's look back to Ephesians 2 as we examine this mission and this purpose. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, there is so much good news here. There is so much beautiful logic packed into this little chunk of Ephesians. Look at this progression. It's point number two in your notes. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, unto good works for his glory alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, unto good works for his glory alone. Let's start at the beginning here as we unpack this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It is only by grace that we are saved, not by works. Salvation is given to us, it is not earned by us in any way. No person has ever lived so righteously or done so many good things that God has been obligated to give them eternal life. We do not deserve salvation because of anything we have done. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. And God is the initiator of salvation by way of grace. We are the recipients of it. It is by his grace alone that we come to salvation. But as we see in verse 8, it doesn't stop there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation, by grace alone, is never alone. It is always accompanied by faith. The response to the grace that God freely and abundantly offers is faith. And faith is trusting God that his free gift of grace in Christ will actually save you. And you see, this is why God's grace is a prerequisite for faith. Faith is not something we first offer to God and then God responds by extending his grace to us. It doesn't doesn't work that way. It's the other way around. Grace first, then faith. But it can't just be any faith in God, right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your faith doesn't save you. Listen to me here. This is so important. Your faith does not save you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. And the object of your faith must be Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and was raised on the third day. But I want to be really, really clear here. 
It is entirely possible to profess Christ, but not actually possess Christ. Turn to James chapter 2. That's what verse 19 says. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You catch that? In other words, Paul is saying, oh, you believe God is triune? Oh, Father, Son, Spirit? You believe that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God? You profess those things? Good job. Right on, man. Even the demons believe that, though. Even the demons profess Christ. And we see this all throughout the gospel accounts, don't we? Whenever Jesus encountered someone possessed by a demon, the demon, it's like they can't help themselves. They always respond and say something to the effect of, we know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. But that profession alone is not sufficient to save them. Their profession, their acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is does not equate to saving faith. Professing faith in Jesus Christ is not the same as possessing Jesus Christ, the source of faith. Professing faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, results in a union with Christ. As Paul famously says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's that union. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Saving faith always results in a union with Christ. And a union with Christ results in obedience, abiding in him. Jesus speaks to this a couple of times in the Gospels, and they are some of the most sobering verses in all of the Bible. In Luke 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And in Matthew 7, verse 21, a very similar thing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is asking here, why do you call me Lord and King of your life, but live your life in such a way that there is no submission to my kingship? Why do you profess but not obey? Why don't you follow the decrees that I have for you for your life? If you truly love me, if I am truly Lord, then you will obey me. If someone swears loyalty or fealty to an earthly king, the expectation is their entire life from that point forward is to honor that king in everything that they do. And if they go against the king's decrees or wishes, they are no longer considered a part of that kingdom. If there is a profession of faith, but nothing following it, how do you know that it's real? A faith that possesses Christ produces fruit that is Christ-like. Or as one of my favorite theologians, the rapper KB says, 
Life ain't been the same since death died. New life means new works. The things you do now as a Christian are not the same as before. You once walked in sin and death, but now you walk in life. And friends, this is exactly what we mean when we say the Hub City Church exists to make disciples who what? Believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. Right, That logical progression is in these three statements. Believe the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone. That is the gospel. Abide in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And obey the word of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, unto good works for his glory alone. You see the connection here? We cannot miss this. Obedience is so important. So often, we as Christians, we love to run around and quote Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, don't we? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And don't get me wrong, they are two of the most essential verses in all of the Bible for understanding how exactly we are saved. But most of the time, we tend to forget about verse 10. And verse 10 gives us the reason why we are saved. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It helps us understand what we are to do now that we are saved. I want to draw your attention back to James chapter 2 really quick. There are some people who would claim that Ephesians 2 and James 2 contradict each other. And they could say, well, Ephesians 2 says we are saved by grace, but James 2 says we are saved by our works. But that is not even close to what James is getting at here. Paul is talking about how we are justified before God, and James is talking about what that justified saving faith looks like. What sort of things does a union with Christ produce in the life of a true believer? Look at James 2, start in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, by, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that life, that faith apart from works is useless? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
James is not contradicting Paul here. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But saving faith is never alone. It always has works. Faith by profession alone is dead because it doesn't have anything to show for it. But faith by possession is alive because it is vindicated. It is proven by its works. Works are not how you are saved. They are the result of it. They are the evidence, the proof. If it is truly saving faith, it will produce works. Now there is another clarification that has to be made here. It has to be addressed. Saving faith will produce works given two things, time and opportunity. Look at the thief on the cross. If someone who truly repents of their sins and truly believes in Jesus Christ on their deathbed, saved. Yes. Yes, they are. Because it's not about your works, it's about your faith in Christ by God's grace. And time and opportunity were not given to the thief on the cross after he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But church, we have time and opportunity. We are here, alive, on this earth, right now for a reason. Works are not the means of salvation, they are the result of it. And both Paul and James are saying the same thing here. Good works always follow saving faith given time and opportunity. The reason for that? Because good works bring God glory. As Pastor Jeff Vanderstelt says, the gospel doesn't call us to behavior modification or to a missional to-do list. The gospel calls us to identity transformation and a missional done list. Our identity is based upon faith and who God is and what he has done through Jesus, which leads to who we are. We don't do what we do out of our need to become anything. We do what we do because in Christ we already are. We are a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Our being in Christ leads to our Christ-like doing. We do what we do because of what we believe that he has done. We love because we were first loved by him. We serve because we were served by Jesus first. What God has done to us, he now wants to do through us to the world. Our new being in Christ leads to our new doing for Christ by his power and for his glory. At this point, you might be asking yourself, that's great, but what exactly are we called to do? What are the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? It's a little vague, Paul. Could you give us some clarification here? Well, church, Paul doesn't give us specifics because Jesus did. Jesus himself gave us the answer when he was in the world carrying out his mission. And the first answer we see is in Mark 12. 
Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them, being Jesus and the Sadducees. Heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, being Jesus, answered them well, asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, Jesus, what is the most important thing to do now? And Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. We've heard of the great commandment, right? Love God, love people. There is no greater commandment than this. Jesus says it himself. And these two things, loving God and loving people, encompass all possible good works that a Christian can do. Let me give you some examples. Let me ask you this. Is reading the Bible a good work? What about praying? What about serving in your local church, singing during worship, giving your tithes and your offerings? Yes, yes. Yes, yes, and yes. All of those things fall under loving God. Those are all good works. But what about these? Are these good works too? Loving and caring for your spouse. Cooking dinner for your children. Caring for widows and orphans. Fostering friendships with your neighbors. Or plucking your husband's eyebrows at 10 p.m. the night before he gives a sermon because he doesn't understand that eyebrow hair doesn't stop growing. That is a true story. It's a conversation my wife and I had last night. The answer, are those good works? Yes, 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 and yes. All of those things love people. And Jesus loves people. All of those things are good works if they are born out of a heart that loves God. All of these things we do as Christians, everything that loves God and loves people, is for a mission, though, and a specific purpose. And this mission is what Jesus gives his disciples right before he ascends back to heaven. Right in Mark 16. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Or as most of us know in Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, this is why we've been given new life in Christ. This is why we are to do good works, because of the Great Commission. 
And so with all of that, here is our takeaway from Ephesians 2 this morning. Right? We have been called to a meaningful and intentional engagement with the world. We've been given a mission and a purpose. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone unto good works for his glory alone. And so I ask you, will you walk in obedience to fulfill your role in the great commandment and great commission? Will you walk in obedience to fulfill your role in the great commandment and great commission? If you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, then these good works, they're not a recommendation, they're a requirement. They are the reason that God has saved you. And God has put people in your life to love and to share the gospel with. God has placed a lifetime of good works in front of you, prepared in eternity past, so that you would obey him and walk in them. Will you stand idly by and do nothing? If you do, you may hear these words in the end. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Or will you heed the call from our Savior to go into the world to love God, love people, and share the gospel? Don't you long to hear these words when you finally come face to face with Christ? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Greg Morse, a pastor from the Twin Cities, says this. We have often failed to recognize, let alone withstand, the temptation of loving our lives in this world. This shows itself not in the great acts of sin we commit, but in the good we do not do. We have been guilty of what Charles Spurgeon has called the sin of doing nothing. Sin is not just the doing of bad, but also the failure of doing good. And we tend to care more about the first than the second. We tend to judge ourselves by what we do instead of what we leave undone. But wars are not won on defense alone. And what glorious battle lines we excuse ourselves from. Is it not our utmost privilege to participate? To watch behind fortress walls would have been enough. To blow the trumpets and attend the banners, an absolute honor. But to be summoned in by the king himself, to be fitted in his armor, given a family to march forth with, and lost souls to win, how can we resist? The conqueror, the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah stands in the thick of the battle. Does your blood not stir to join him? Church, we have been given a mission and a purpose. We are here on this earth today for a reason. We have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone so that we would do good works that bring God glory. Love God, love people, and share the gospel.
my final question to you this morning is, will you go and be the church? Will you go and be the church? Our Heavenly Father, God, how we long to be in heaven with you. How we long for an eternity with you that it is free from pain and suffering and sin. But Father, until that moment, help us to see that there is work to be done. We have a mission and a purpose on this earth. And thank you for bringing us in on that mission. Thank you for breath in our lungs so that we may glorify you with our hands, our hearts, and our mouths. Give us a faith of possession, alive in Christ, and not a dead faith of profession alone. Help us to be good stewards of this time that you've given us. Help us to flee from the sin of doing nothing. Help us to run to the front lines so that we may declare to a dead and dying world the message of hope in the gospel, eternal life in Jesus Christ alone. It is not us alone who will accomplish this, but Christ in us. Help us to fully rely on him as we are sent out into the world. Help us to believe, abide, and obey. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Stir our blood, stir us up so that we may go meet Jesus on the front lines of the battlefield. We look to him as King, Lord, and Savior of our lives. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.